uh, I know you're thinking doubleheader, right? Like we got we got Clay who preaches for like a, four hours um, coming after this. So uh, I don't want to give you any false promises, but I'm going to try to be a little more little, little more brief here uh, than usual. But uh, yeah, it's just it's graduation night, and it's sweet to see all you guys up here, and we're celebrating. And and regardless of whether you're graduating from college or not. Um, our lives are full of these transitional periods, you know, different, different points. Um, some of these new phases of life are exciting. You know, they hold out promise uh, for our happiness. You think like, wow, the semester's almost over, right? Um, pretty soon you're not going to have the pressures of final projects or papers or exams. That's not going to be bearing down on you. You're going to be able to actually do a little bit more of what you want to do. You'll be able to earn some extra money, praise the Lord, right? And uh, maybe finally get away from that roommate that uh, you don't like too well. Don't look next to each other, okay? Just look down. It's time to go home to see your family, right? And uh, actually get a little sleep. And so you think, this summer's going to be great. You know, I'm, I'm, there's so much potential. There's, I'm going to be so happy. This transition. Or maybe you're, you're not in school, you're working now, and so you don't get that luxury of the transition to summer break anymore. Um, that's long gone. But that doesn't mean you still don't have seasons where you are hoping for change. You know, that vacation you've got scheduled, you've been waiting 364 days to, uh, since the last one to enjoy. And, you know, you're sitting there, you can almost feel the sand between your toes. You try hard enough, you can hear the ocean breaking, the waves breaking, and you can feel the, feel the sun, smell the sunscreen, all the good stuff. And you think, man, if I can just get there, right? If I can just get to that point, then I will be happy, finally. So these transition phases, you know, often hold out a lot of promise, but then other times the, the transitions are not so exciting. And uh, in fact, we might dread them. We wish, you know, with all our might that we could stay in the current season we're in, and maybe that's you right now. Maybe summer break for you means gonna go, you're going back to a difficult family situation. Maybe you've tried to stay here. You'd prefer to stay here if you could, but you couldn't get a job or you couldn't find a place to stay. And it's super easy to forecast out, you know, and just like see the difficulties that are awaiting you, and you get that pit in your stomach. A sick feeling, feelings of dread. Summer's going to be terrible. It's going to be rough, you think. And I'm going to be so unhappy. Or maybe you were dating, but now you're not anymore. And for you, this isn't so much of a new season, but a return to an old season. A season of singleness again, a season that you'd hoped that was behind you for good, and you dread it. You go back and you replay again and again what went wrong in the relationship and how things might have been different. And if I would just acted differently here or been more encouraging there, less critical, you know, maybe we would still be together. Maybe I would be happy. And so these changes in our lives, these seasons of life, bring with it either new promises of happiness or dread of, of losing that happiness that we once had. And many times there's a mix, you know, like we're not sure what to expect, especially like graduation. You know, you're headed off to new places, internships, jobs, relocation. 
It's the end of an era. You're getting into some unknown territory. But this afternoon, I was kind of thinking a little bit about knowing I was following Rich and, and thinking about, okay, if, if Paul were here, like, what would he tell you? What would be something he would tell you um, in this, this phase? This time you have so much promise ahead of you, so much fear and trepidation. What would he charge you with if he were going to charge you with something from his last words here in Philippians? And if there's something that he could encourage you to take with you through all of life's seasons, I think his answer would be contentment. I think he would encourage you to cultivate a contented heart. A heart that freely submits to God in every situation. A heart that trusts in his wise and good ordering of every detail of your lives. It's a heart that delights in his fatherly care for you in every single circumstance. And one pastor, old pastor, by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs, described contentment as a rare jewel. Right? You know the book I'm talking about? He wrote a book by that title. It's called A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I love that because it captures the preciousness of this gracious frame of spirit. This jewel is rare. I mean, even as I described contentment just a few seconds ago, you might have found yourself thinking, is that even possible? Like, what he just, what he just said? This gracious frame of spirit that... that Submits to God, delights in his fatherly care. I don't know if I've ever met anybody that consistently lives like that. You know? It is rare for sure, even for the Christian. You know, it's not automatic. It's hard fought. But even though it's rare, it is possible. And not only possible, but it's something that God is actively working to teach us over the course of our lives. Part of his purpose is for us. And that's because to possess contentment, to have learned it, like Paul says in our passage tonight, that is one of the greatest treasures that we could possess. It is like a precious jewel. It's of infinite value. It brings with it consistent happiness and hopefulness. It's a soul that's comforted. It's a soul that's blessed by God. It's a soul like we saw over the last few weeks that experiences His peace, that passes understanding, that experiences God's very presence. A contented soul will be preserved from so many evils. Evils like greed and fear. A contented soul will be eminently useful to the Lord. It's truly a rare jewel, as Jeremiah Burroughs says. A jewel that's worth possessing. A jewel that's available to every Christian. But what does this look like in real time? What's a contented heart look like in a world that's full of difficulty and pain? Where does it come from? How do we come by it? Well, thankfully for us in our text tonight, Paul's going to show us what a contented heart looks like and how a contented heart responds to the needs of life. Where this heart comes from. And he's going to give us, like I'm saying here tonight, an x-ray of a contented heart. And it's his own heart. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4. 
we got this message and, and next week, and we are done with this letter. Hard to believe. But in this final paragraph of the letter, Paul ends this letter where he begins, back in chapter 1, or where he began it, and I know you don't, but if perchance you happen to remember, you know, beginning of last year when we started this letter, you will remember that Paul begins this letter by expressing his gratitude for the Philippians, and in particular, how they've partnered with him in the gospel for the last ten years. They've always loved Paul, and they've tried to meet his needs as best as they can. And even recently, they delivered an incredible monetary gift to Paul. And it was probably one of his darkest and most destitute hours of his life. And so he begins and ends this sweet letter with gratitude. But what I find fascinating about this this last paragraph is how even as Paul expresses his gratitude for their gift, he doesn't want them to misunderstand what he's saying. Even though he's really grateful for their support, he wants to make sure the Philippians see that as bad as his circumstances were, Paul was not discontent or resenting the Lord at all. He's content either way. He trusts his Lord. He knows he's loved by Christ. He knows he will be strengthened by Christ to endure. He trusts that he's going to be taken care of even if he starves to death. And in fact, he goes on to say what really excites him is not simply that he has his needs met, but that by meeting his needs, the Philippians are bearing eternal fruit. Fruit they will be rewarded for in the end. It's an incredible 11 verses. And uh, we're just going to cover the first couple of them tonight, but let's go ahead and look together at at chapter 4, verse 10. Here's Paul. He's pivoted from the, the final commands of the letter, and now verse 10 really to the end of the, end of the letter, is like the, you can think of it as one final paragraph. Verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, here's the caveat, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to, be, and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Caveat, though, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. These gifts which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's this passage, and tonight we're going to focus on the the first three verses here. And we're going to cover the rest in our our time next Thursday. And here Paul's going to model for us what I'm um, calling uh, 
what a contented heart looks like, or like an x-ray of a contented heart. And, and for our purposes, we'll call it three characteristics of a contented heart. These things kind of leap off the page here for us, and we'll just kind of capture these and, and look at these really quick. Now, the first characteristic of, of this heart might surprise you. I know it did for me as I was thinking about this. I was meditating on these, these words here. The first thing that Paul reveals about his own heart is that it's not unaffected by life's circumstance. His heart's a contented heart, but his heart is still affected in some level by life's circumstances. Or we can say it like this. A contented heart does not minimize life's circumstances. Now hang with me on this, because it might... You might think initially, like, what? where's he getting that from? Notice he starts in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Here we see Paul, he's not minimizing his situation or the seriousness of it or the joy he feels at the fact that they met his need. Okay? In other words, a contented heart does not minimize life's circumstances. It doesn't, being content does not mean you think your circumstances don't matter. Or that they're unimportant. Contentment's not being aloof, right? Like your head in the sand, out of touch with reality or the way things really are. It also doesn't mean that you don't ever feel anything. Like you're like a robot, you know, like content, you know. Or like you're some ancient stoic that is just a stone, right? It doesn't mean you don't get discouraged when something's hard or elated when something goes well. And Paul showcases this beautifully in the opening verse of this paragraph. The first thing he says about his heart is that it's contented, right? The first thing he says about his heart is that he got really happy. He was overjoyed when he received their love and their monetary support. Right? What's he saying? He's saying that their gift brought him great joy. Their alleviation of at least some of his suffering was a welcome blessing, a blessing he received with joy. In other words, Paul wasn't aloof. He wasn't stoic. He knew that he was in dire straits in prison. And when he saw Epaphroditus coming... And he saw what they had collected in order to meet his needs. His heart, he says, leapt with joy. Great joy, actually. But I want you also to notice how carefully he crafts the statement. He's not rejoicing ultimately in the gift itself. Not even in the Philippians who took it up. But he is rejoicing in who? What's the text say? I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. What's he doing? He's tracing the good gift, this change in circumstances, all the way back to its origin, his sovereign Lord. And he knows the Lord caused this church to hear of his plight. He knows the Lord moved their hearts with compassion and pity. He knows the Lord caused them to give lavishly and generally. He knows the Lord protected Epaphroditus on his long journey from Philippi all the way to Rome, brought him back to health when he got dangerously ill. 
And he knows the Lord was the one who ultimately has met his need. And so, Paul rejoices in the Lord when he experienced this church's love and monetary gift. And Paul's joy here at at the practical provision, this shows us that he's not minimizing his circumstances. Okay? He's not saying they're unimportant. He's not acting like he doesn't really care whether he eats or not. I'm sure he longed for a meal, especially if he hadn't eaten for several days. And I'm sure he longed to be remembered by one of his churches. Paul here shows us that a content heart does not minimize our circumstances, doesn't minimize the good or the bad. Now, why am I driving, why am I driving this home? Because sometimes we are tempted to think, if we're really content, then we are unaffected by our circumstances. Right? I won't feel any intense longings if I'm content. You ever thought that? What are some examples? You ready for it? I hear this one all the time. If I'm content with my singleness, I won't ever long to be married. What? We sometimes equate contentment with a lack of desire, right? If I'm content, then I shouldn't desire a different job or take steps to get one. If I do, then I might be discontent. Or we might encounter a particularly difficult trial and think, if I'm really trusting God in this trial, I won't cry out, I won't lament, I won't experience sorrow, I won't express the difficulty to anybody. That would be discontentment. And sometimes that misunderstanding leads to being passive when we really should be active, right? A young guy might think he's being content by not pursuing a young lady when he really needs to get after taking responsibility and get married. Someone might think they're being content with not working and just trusting God to provide, or they're being content with not working and just trusting God to provide when they really need to be proactive in finding a job and making money to support themselves and others. So, we got to see this. The contentment, it's not minimizing life circumstances. It's not not aloof. And I think the flip side is also true. If you're afraid to long for good things, right? If you say, I can't have any any good longings, or therefore I'm not content. If you're afraid to long for good things, then you're also going to shy away from really rejoicing in God when He provides. You're not going to be like Paul here. When God actually meets your practical need, when He supplies a good thing for you, you're going to be afraid to really let yourself rejoice in Him for providing that blessing. But Paul was not afraid to rejoice when God met his need through the generosity of others. In fact, he says he rejoiced greatly, meaning he rejoiced with intensity. So it's just worth pointing out that this first characteristic of this content heart it doesn't minimize life circumstances. It doesn't treat them as unimportant or insignificant. And we say, okay, got that. It's a helpful caveat. Now, next verse, Paul kind of, he, he caveats himself a bit. He doesn't, he doesn't want this joy, this expression to be taken the wrong way. He doesn't want this church to think that he was in any way discontent before they met his need. Was he in need? Yes or no? 
Yes, he was. Did he long to eat? Yes. Was he discontent? No. Even though a content heart does not minimize life circumstances, it is also not dependent on life circumstances. It doesn't depend, it's not sourced in whether life's going well or not. Here's the caveat. Paul says, not that I am speaking, verse 11, of being in need. Because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's he showing us in these verses? Well, he's showing us that true contentment is not dependent on his circumstances. Or we could say it like this. Good circumstances don't make us content. And bad circumstances don't prevent us from being content. Hard to live, but true. Good circumstances do not make us content. And bad circumstances don't prevent us from being content. And you say, how do you know that? Well, Paul's life proves it. (laughs) His example here shows us that we can have this rare jewel of contentment in absolutely any circumstance we might face. At any stage of life, in any joy or sorrow, in any success, in any failure. He lists the two extremes to show us that we can have contentment in any situation. Two extremes. Poverty and plenty. Starvation and feasting. And he says he's learned to be content in those extremes and then implying everything else in between. And that is a radical statement. And it's even more radical given the lows this guy lived through. He was often hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and beaten and homeless and exhausted from manual labor. 1 Corinthians 4. He says he was constantly hungry, often without food, frequently cold because he didn't have proper clothing. He even once described himself as naked, 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11. And yet, here he is, claiming that even in these circumstances, even in the lowest of the low, he is able to be content. Think of how easy it would have been for Paul to have believed he was abandoned by God when he was on the verge of starving to death. And he was there often. Think of how easy it would have been to him, to him, to him have, to have believed that Christ doesn't love him when he didn't even have a coat to keep him warm in the winter. How easy would it have been to think, I'm being punished because I'm in prison. The worst human circumstances did not cause him to curse his God 
didn't cause him to resent his God or doubt his God. They didn't cause him to gripe to his co-workers or yell at his prison guards or sulk in self-pity. They didn't prevent him from being content, from failing to trust in God's fatherly care. But not only was he content in the worst of times, he says he's also learned how to be content in the best of times. In abundance, in prosperity, when his stomach was full. When Paul wasn't in prison, okay, it's easier to think of Paul as just like poverty-stricken guy. You know, when he wasn't in prison, he was being chased by the Jews, he worked hard to earn money for himself and others. He taught his disciples to do the same. He talks about that in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. Let him labor. Working hard with his hands. Paul was no stranger to work or to the resources that came from work. In one sense, you know, he knows that we need them to live. And so he gets after it. And yet he learned what the pitfalls were and not to fall into them. That's what this text implies. He learned not to put his hope in money, but on God, who richly supplies us with everything to enjoy. He wrote that, 1 Timothy 6. And since he trusted in his good and wise father to supply his needs, he was free to use his resources wisely and faithfully as a good steward. He was free to save his money if he needed to. He was free to give it away if he needed to. He was free to enjoy it and bless God for it, or he was free to provide for others. He did not let the abundance of life erode his contented trust in his father's care. Now, why is Paul sharing this long example from his own life? Okay, you might read this and go and be like, is he bragging? You're like, what's, what's going on here? Like, why is he, I mean, he's, he's hammering at home, you know, like in the most extreme language. He's doing this, I think, to encourage the Philippians. It's a poor church. They scrapped around to like find money to send to him. And he's sharing it to encourage us tonight. He intends to bring us tremendous hope. He is showing us this kind of glorious contentment that this rare jewel is possible for every single one of us tonight. His life proves that it is accessible. And he shows us that poverty will not take it away. And he also shows us that excess, there's, there's nothing to it. It won't give you this contentment of the soul that you seek. But how do we get it there? Right? So how do we mimic Paul here? Well, he's going to tell us the secret in verse 13, but, but notice now that he's already given us a hint. What's the hint? Notice that he says he has, quote, learned contentment in every situation. So how did he become content? He had to learn it, just like we do. Meaning, the Lord had to teach him to be content. Situation by situation. It's not automatic as a Christian, and especially not as a young Christian, like most of you are. But the Lord, as our great teacher, is faithfully committed to cultivating this glorious virtue by His power, you can see that, by His power in our lives. So we can say it like this. A contented heart has been strengthened 
by Christ in all of, his, in all of life's circumstances. A contented heart, number three, has been strengthened by Christ in all of life's circumstances. He says that in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So how was Paul able to be content in all of life's circumstances? How was he able to endure poverty without resentment? I was able to navigate abundance without greed. It's certainly not through his own power. Here he says it is through tapping into Christ's strengthening power. He's able to do it all, he says, by Christ who strengthens him. Situation by situation. And for Paul, that is his secret. That's the secret. That's what he's learned over the years. He's learned how to run to Christ in his weakness and to be strengthened by Christ. He's learned to run to the only one who can calm his soul. He's learned to to come to the only one who can steady him who can provide lasting and transcendent joy. He's learned to tap into Christ's strength. And you would say, well, that sounds great. You know, we talk about that a lot. Tapping into Christ. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Like, how how does that happen? Right? Like, what, what does that, how do we do that? How are we strengthened by the Lord? What does that look like? Well, in another letter, Paul spells out how Abraham was actually strengthened by God over in Romans 4. And he uses the same verb we find in our text here. Romans 4, verse 21. I'll I'll put it up on the screen here. He says, Abraham became strong by faith. By actually learning to believe God's word over what his eyes saw. And you remember the story. God had promised Abraham that he would cause his barren wife Sarah to conceive a son. Picking up in verse 20, he says, Paul writes, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But, here's my translation, he was strengthened by faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What's he saying? There's kind of a negative and a positive here, right? Verse 20. He's saying that, number number one, the enemy to experiencing God's strength is unbelief. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Then he contrasts that with his faith. So that means if we're going to be strengthened by Christ, we have to go to war on our unbelief. Right? Unbelief is going to make us waver. That's a weakness. That's not strength. That means we've got to smoke out the lies that we're tempted to believe in our best and worst circumstances. Persistent unbelief, then, is going to result in weakness and discontentment. 
But he's also saying that the way we tap into God's power is by faith. It's by knowing and trusting his promises. It's by cultivating a deep conviction, like he says here, that God is able to do what he promises. And you have to know the God who made the promise, what he's like. He's able to do this. He's powerful enough to actually keep his promise. So we, he was, Abraham was strengthened by faith, by exercising faith as he gave glory to God. And remember, this faith was not easy. Okay? Abraham had to hope against hope, Paul says in the same chapter. He, just, he couldn't rely on his own human logic. Sarah was barren, i.e. past menopause, right? Like these things don't happen. He couldn't rely on his emotions. He couldn't rely on his own assessment of the situation. He only had one thing to rely on, and that was God's naked word. Paul says that he became strong by precisely that way. And became, meaning he was strengthened by God. He tapped into God's power as he learned to trust his word above what he felt or experienced And that is where the power's at. So let's think that through with one concrete example, and then we'll be done. Let's think through going home to a difficult situation. Like in the semester, don't want to go home. How can you cultivate a contented heart as you're heading into that? How can you tap into Christ's power? Well, first, you have to remember that a contented heart doesn't minimize those circumstances, does it? Right? Like if we go back to our first, first point, it's not wrong to grieve a difficult family scenario. It's, it's not wrong to not exactly be looking forward to getting right back into the thick of the drama or the pain. But it's right here that we've got to think in terms of faith and not what we feel. You've got to ask, what do you know to be true about God? What do you know about his involvement in this dreaded situation? You just start listing it out, right? Come to him in prayer around these things. How, how his truth confronts those fears and discouragements. Oh, not, not that one. Nope. We got any more, got any more PowerPoints up there? All right. In your mind, in your mind's eye. Are you there? Visualize a chart. <laughs> On the one side, just two columns, not complicated. Say unbelief, like this we see in Romans, unbelief. And then think faith in the other column. Luke's going to work his magic and it's going it's to magically pop up here. Look at that. The man of the hour. All right. Oh, still not right. Nope. There it is. Wow, how did that that happen? Okay. All right. So you got these feelings. You're thinking about going back home. And you start feeling something. I feel so alone. I feel out of place when I go back home. 
I'm tempted to feel abandoned by the Lord. And that fuels this discontentment in my situation. If you're honest, if you sit down, start thinking about it, that's what I feel. What do you know? I know that Christ is with me. I will be with you to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. I know that. I know that he has promised that he will never leave me or forsake me. I know that he has promised that he will help me. And now you have a choice. Are you going to live on what you feel? Or are you going to live on what's true? But you say, what? I just, I'm so tempted because I look at my friends who have these great families to go back to, and I don't have a great family to go back. I'm envious. So I'm in, and, I, and I, when I think about that, I just, it's so hard to be content in my situation. Like, I'm just so, I'm so tempted to be discontent. Okay, so it's what you feel. What do you know? Well, I know that Christ loves me more than I could ever imagine. And from that love that he has a good purpose, even in this tough circumstance. And I'm confident because of these promises that he this summer is going to prove himself faithful to me. He's going to work in me and through me this summer for glorious fruit, that he has fruit planned for me. Fruit that's going to stretch me, grow me. It's going to break in blessing on my head at his return. And the good news is, this whole thing is full of truth for you to battle. Those feelings. You're tempted to fixate on all the bad things about your scenario back home, but, I'm not, but you know that it's not all bad, that God has tucked in these many blessings for you, even in the midst of these difficulties and trials. They're tokens of his love for you, even as you go back home. So this is how Christ strengthens us. As we run to him in prayer, as we remind ourselves of his word, Like, it's not going to work if you just say, strengthen me. And you don't confront your unbelief. Prayer is important. But prayer is we come back to God and we hear from God what He has said in His Word. And we trust Him. And we choose to believe Him over what we feel. And we orient our lives to those truths. And that is how his strength came to Abraham, says Paul. And that is how we experience Christ's strength today. It is Christ's schooling method, if you will. It's how he answers our prayer for strength. He's weaning us off, trusting what our eyes see and trusting in what his word says.
And so whether you're graduating or not, contentment is a great treasure. It's necessary for all of life's circumstances. It is truly a rare jewel, like Jeremiah Burroughs wrote. It's a precious treasure. It's available to every single Christian, though. So have you experienced Paul's secret? Have you experienced the strengthening power of Christ? Paul shows you the x-ray of a heart, of his heart. It's not perfect by any stretch, but it's a heart that's been in the school of Christ, a heart that has learned where to go for strength. And he shares his heart to you so that you can cultivate that sweet and gracious spirit too. That gentle disposition that freely submits to God. That attitude that delights in his wise and good fatherly care of you. As Paul says, in every situation. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these sweet and very precious promises that you've given to us. Thank you for a night where we can reflect on your goodness as we think about the close of a semester and to at least 23 people here tonight, the the end of an era of, of college life. And you have been so faithful. And Lord, I know that at least my heart is prone toward discontentment at times in various circumstances, usually when it's difficult. And yet you're so patient. You're such a tender shepherd, um, putting us in your school to teach us about contentment, to set us free, to continue to be useful to you, and to live a life full of, of joy and experiencing your peace like we've seen in weeks before. And so we pray tonight as we fellowship that uh, that would be sweet and that you would continue to build us up. And we pray in Jesus' name.